Defense and intelligence agencies are tightening access to sensitive information in the wake of those damaging leaks. The FBI arrested a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman and charged him with releasing the classified material. But experts say it's too early to determine exactly what went wrong, and some are worried about an overreaction to a situation that's garnered international attention. For the latest, we turn to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Eric. How are you? I'm very well as well. So what is the national security apparatus doing in reaction to these leaks that have really stunned everybody across the board? Yeah, as you can imagine, it's been a pretty swift and and big reaction to these leaks. After the arrest of uh, Jack Teixeira last week, 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, you know, President Joe Biden directed uh, military and intelligence agencies to secure and limit distribution of sensitive information. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has also directed a review of intelligence access, accountability and control procedures across the Defense Department. And a top National Security Council spokesman today confirmed that indeed they're looking at security clearance processes, whether or not the way in which people are cleared for access is appropriate. Uh, Another thing they might look at is the distribution of certain types of classified material, whether it's too wide. Of a, of a distribution. This is according to John Kirby, the National Security Council's coordinator for strategic communications. So clearly this these leaks, uh, the, the, the allegations against Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, about the war in Ukraine and other sensitive U.S. intelligence has really set off a, a big review across defense and intelligence agencies. So as far as this investigation goes, what happens next? What are officials going to be looking at in terms of what happened and and how this incident could have been prevented? Right. Well, Teixeira was formally charged in court on Friday. Uh, He's been charged with two counts under the Espionage Act, and there will be a follow up hearing on Wednesday. And of course, investigators will be homing in on, on how exactly he accessed these documents. Uh, the, the FBI's charging documents state he worked as a cyber defense operations journeyman, essentially a network technician for the Air National Guard at an intelligence base up in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And they'll be looking at, you know, whether he inappropriately accessed these documents. And then, of course, how he was able to get photos of these documents online. Uh, So I spoke with Bishop Garrison. He's a former senior DOD advisor who now serves as vice president of policy for the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. He kind of summarized what kind of questions investigators will have. Where was the skiff? What skiff did he get into? How did he have regular access to that skiff? What were the procedures of that skiff whenever individuals were inside of it? So we have questions about the specifics around how he physically did it and what he did that can then help us gain the answers of what we need to do moving forward to help prevent against this type of activity. And again, that's Bishop Garrison, a former senior DOD advisor. Got it. And so you're reporting, though, that there are concerns there could be an overreaction to this incident and they might just lock down anybody who wants to access classified material. What are you hearing about that? Right. Well, you know, a lot of a lot of this material is more widely uh, accessible across the defense and intelligence community. In the wake of of 9-11, there was a big push to break down, quote unquote, stovepipes, as they were called, across the intelligence community and more widely share intelligence and analysis so folks could put the pieces together. And then, of course, more recently, there's been a big push to share intelligence information about the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, with, across 
the defense and intelligence community in the United States, but then, of course, with international partners as well. So there's been this push to more widely share intelligence. And now you could see the pendulum start to swing back uh, the other way. I, I spoke with Robert Cardillo. He's the former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and he shared with me his concerns about a potential overreaction. I suspect that we're going to, you know, you know, make some changes with respect to access at the kind of places where the accused worked. But what I hope doesn't happen is I hope we don't go back to the prior era when, you know, every agency and even within agencies, you know, people treat information access as a source of power, influence control, and then that then gets us back to the disconnected, segregated, and then I, I would argue ineffective intelligence community. Robert Cardillo, former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency there. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so, Justin, some people are looking at the age of the alleged leaker and whether a junior member of the armed forces should have this kind of access. Uh, What is the thinking there? Yeah, of course, you know, folks are looking at why a 21-year-old was able to have access to such top secret information. Uh, But of course, there's a couple different points there. First, There's a lot of folks in the military who are as young as 18 who have uh, security clearances of some sort uh, in the first place just to do their jobs. And and his job was essentially a a computer technician, a system admin type role that needed access to these highly classified systems. So that kind of gives you the potential answer as to why he had this, this really high access I spoke with Lindy Kaiser. She's the director of content for the Clearance Jobs website that really tracks these security clearance issues closely. And she pushed back on, you know, some of the criticism that started to push that started to come out about how young this guy, uh, this alleged leaker was. There are a number of 18 to 21 year olds who do have a top secret security clearance who are performing intelligence functions, who are working as analysts, who do see sensitive information and would never compromise that information. So it's not an age issue or a vetting issue per se, but clearly something in the process happened here that broke down, and that's what I'm sure many, many people are spending hours analyzing at this very moment. Again, that's Lindy Kaiser, Director of Content for Clearance Jobs. She also pointed out that you know the federal workforce is only getting older, especially the def- in the defense and intelligence uh, agencies, and you know there will there will might be a push to perhaps vet younger people, but that could actually go against the grain of trying to recruit more young people into the national security workforce. So there's some tension there. Yeah, and you certainly don't want any more blocks in front of uh, recruiting younger workers into the federal workforce. So what else could DOD look at when it comes to security practices and protocols? Yeah, we mentioned, you know, the security clearance issues and the distribution of classified information. Uh, of course, th- they'll be taking a close look at the SCIF up at the uh, Air Force Base that we mentioned earlier and how the security procedures worked there. He was uh, apparently, uh, the, the, the alleged leaker, Teixeira, was apparently able to print materials. And the New York Times actually kind of matched up the photos of the materials online with his uh, his countertop from his childhood home. So it appears that he was able to bring highly classified printed materials home. So they'll be taking a close look at how exactly that happened. And then, you know, insider threat programs are supposed to kind of, uh, you know, lead to folks having some training around whether to look for certain signs about 
um, whether someone might be might be about to do damage to an organization like leaking highly classified materials. And so we'll have to see how the Department of Justice investigation and and case moves forward and what kind of facts um, come out here about what what exactly broke down in the process, if anything. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. I'm sure you'll have more on this later on because we've only just begun on this topic and this investigation. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more to come here. Thanks, Eric. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. 
So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was, but my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you wanna be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. 
are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind of brilliant. see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.